You're listening to a Cripple and Co. production. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Clonawilly.com. Clonawilly and Clonopussy are do-it-yourself molding kits that allow anyone to make an exact replica of any penis or vulva into a sex toy at home. All materials are ethically sourced and 100% body safe. If you shop at clonawilly.com right now and use the promo code DARKPOD at checkout, you can get 20% off site-wide. Wow! That's a deal that cannot be cloned. I talked to one of the representatives the other day, and they are more than willing to answer any questions you have about how to make your own clone willy or clone pussy, how to use the kit. They're so, so willing to go on this journey of cloning a willy or cloning a pussy with you. And they're super nice and super responsive to any concerns. So if you want to pick up your own clone willy or clone a pussy kit right now, head over to clonawilly.com and use promo code DARKPOD. That's D-A-R-K-P-O-D at checkout right now. And remember... This is a deal that cannot be cloned. This episode of Disability After Dark has been brought to you by Come As You Are. Come As You Are is Canada's only worker-owned co-op sex shop. Trans-owned and operated, Come As You Are carefully reviews and curates their selection of sex toys, books, and DVDs. Now you can get 15% off your next purchase at comeasyouare.com using coupon code AFTERDARK. We call it slicking the bean, choking the chicken, giving yourself a hand, auditioning finger puppets. There's a million and one names for the old five-finger shuffle, and yet hundreds of millions of people are unable to sauce the taco due to disability, aging, or illness. That's where we come in, if you'll pardon the phrase. At Bumpin', we've created the world's first accessible sex toy, so people with limited mobility, hand issues, and disabilities can celebrate Palm Sunday just like everyone else. If you agree that everyone deserves sexual pleasure, help us spread the self-love and fund an orgasm for those in need. Give the gift of the big O at getbumpin.com. That's G-E-T-B-U-M-P-N dot com. Content warning. The language, content, and discussion found within this episode of Disability After Dark will be explicit. Listener discretion advised. This is a podcast that looks at disability stories. It's like sitting down with a really close friend to have a real conversation about disability, sexuality, and everything else about the disability experience that we don't talk about. The things about being disabled we keep in the dark. Here is your deliciously disabled host, disability awareness consultant, Andrew Gerza. Hello, hello, friends. Welcome to the show, friends, and thank you so much for clicking on this brand new episode of Disability After Dark, the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories. I'm, of course, your delectably, deliciously disabled host, Andrew Gerza. Let's get comfy, cozy, and crippled and get the show started, shall we? I want to thank you so much for being here, and if you are a Patreon, 
You are listening to the show one day early, completely ad-free, and you can sign up at patreon.com slash disabilityafterdark to receive this great perk. Also, you'll receive a special on-the-air shout-out for me to say thank you for pledging. So consider doing that, and you can pledge as little as $1 a month or up to $5 a month or more if that works for your budget, or a yearly amount if that's something you want to do, and I would really appreciate it. Your funds help to keep the show going and help to keep groceries in my fridge, so I fully appreciate your support. But now let's get to the awesome show we have for you today. Let's do it right now. On the show today, I get to sit down with one of my new friends and colleagues and someone who I'm really excited to introduce you to, my friend, author Joe Mino, who wrote a book called The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies that is a really important book with characters that deal with a myriad of disabilities, and I think it was really, really cool to sit down with him. And so we talk about what The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies is all about. It's a work of fiction about a family in Chicago who are dealing with a number of disabilities. One of the characters lives with hearing loss, which mirrors Joe's own experience of an author with hearing loss or a person with hearing loss. And there's characters who deal with mental illness. There's characters who deal with dementia. There's so many things going going on in this book. And I love the way that Joe creates the characters in this book. And I, I just really enjoyed it. And I was so excited to sit down with him. I highly recommend that you go pick up a book, a book of extraordinary tragedies wherever you get books. It's a really, really powerful piece of work. And I love that it includes characters with disabilities and talks about disabilities not as the central part of the story, but just an, an added element to the story. And I really, really appreciated that. So I'm excited to introduce you to author Joe Mino, the author of A Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, right now on Disability After Dark. Joe Minu, oh, said it wrong. <laughs> Let me try again. Joe, hello. Hey, Andrew, how are you doing? Do you notice I just didn't say the, the last word, so I couldn't say it right? I uh, think that's brilliant. Well played. Thank you so much for being here today, and thanks for coming on Disability After Dark. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Andrew. You are a really cool author who's written a really awesome book, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. But before I, we jump into all of that, can you just introduce yourself a little bit? Say hello. Tell us who you are, what you do. Sure. Yeah. My name is Joe Mino. I am a fiction writer and journalist. I live here in Chicago, Illinois. Um, I also teach creative writing to undergraduate and graduate students at Columbia College Chicago, which is an amazing art school here in the city. Um, yeah. And I've been a, a nonfiction writer for a variety of magazines like the Chicago uh Tribune, Chicago Magazine, New York Times as well. So I've been able, you know, really fortunate to write a variety of different kinds of things. Wow, New York Times, Chicago Tribune. I feel like I'm, I feel like, you know, that's your, your famous basically. That's cool. I mean, that's awesome. No. That's really, that's my really- kid the other day, my dad, my, my kid, my son, he's like 12 and he's like, Dad, I have like a, like an article come out and he's like, Dad, are you the most famous writer? 
in Chicago. And I was like, not even. And he's like, top 50, top 50. And I was like, you, maybe. You should have been like, yes, of course I am. What are you even talking about? Of course, of course. Because I don't, I don't want him to later be like, oh my gosh, why did I think my dad? Oh, you know, we were talking about Ray Bradbury. And I said, oh, Ray Bradbury grew up in the suburbs of Chicago. And that's when he's like, he's like, yeah, dad. Are you the most famous? Like, and it's such a funny, Andrew, it's such a funny question because like in 2023, the idea of like being a writer of any kind or a podcaster and then achieving fame for doing that thing, it seems kind of preposterous. I mean, yeah. I I just feel lucky, you you know, if you can find um, something that you love and you can keep at it and keep creating work you know the idea of like fame never really never enters it yeah I mean I've had those moments where like you know and because in the work I do I'm a creative so it's nice to be recognized and it's nice to get those accolades but you're like you know what I'd rather just keep my head down and keep doing what I'm doing and like I don't need the I don't want all the stress of like a a person handling me I don't want any of that I want to just do my job do my work and then whatever so other than trying to impress my kids, uh, you know, it, it's for me, I've, I've been so lucky to be able to explore a lot of different kinds of work. And a lot of those different, you know, whether it's nonfiction, fiction, it all kind of ends up being part of one like lifelong project that you're you're working on. Yeah. Um, so this is a this is a, a disability after dark. We shine a light on disability stories. And so one of the things that I want to ask every guest when we first jump on is can you share with us what your disabilities are and how they impact your day-to-day life? Sure. Well, and I love the, um, that question because a lot of times, you know, as a writer or as a public person, sometimes we're skeptical or not entirely comfortable discussing that at the beginning of the conversation, kind of like slip it in or. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that idea that this is kind of who I am. You know, I think the phrase that I use most often is I live with hearing loss, you know, so I I have hearing loss. I've had it for the last 18 years. It's unfortunately progressive hearing loss. That's fun for you, I'm sure. (laughs) It's gotten slightly worse over time. Yeah. And um, it's also I have asymmetrical hearing loss, which means it's it's worse in my left ear in my right ear and it's also it's really interesting you know I don't know how much folks know about hearing loss but there's not an easy explanation for it and scientists sometimes are even baffled by how someone you know develops the condition sometimes it's genetic and sometimes it can even be caused by like a virus um, or it can be caused by um, noise exposure in my case I had a variety of all three of those different um, whether you know, I had a lot of earaches as a kid. My mother um, at the age of 75 is now completely deaf. And I also was a music journalist and a musician for a long time and was always at like the front row of different shows. <laughs> Until by my 30s, I, it was really my wife started to point out like, hey, it seems like you're having a hard time hearing. And then when our kids were born, I really started to struggle um, and it's mostly in daily conversations. And so when, when I think about hearing loss, I still hear, I can hear low end sounds really well and very, very high pitch sounds. It's the middle that's difficult. And it happens to be exactly where the human voice. Oh, of course. 
Yes, it's like the one thing, like the one thing you need in order to communicate with other people. Yeah. Uh, and so I avoided it. I was able to mask it and hide and like come up with all these different tactics. You know, I'm a teacher. And so when I was noticing it with my students, I would like, you know, make sure I would circle around the room. And if someone had a question, I would, you know, make sure I came by them so I could hear the question and constantly. And I still am like constantly on my feet as an instructor um, in order to kind of um, make sure I was hearing everything clearly. And then really, I think my my wife and kids bear the brunt of it, where it's like in small conversations, it's just hard sometimes. And it's not that I don't hear sounds or I don't hear the words, it's that I can't correctly identify. And that's like, yeah. it drives my wife and kids crazy where they'll say something and I'll, and, and the, the word that pops in my head is, is like maybe the first couple letters are similar. But like in my mind, I'll be struggling to find the right word. And it's to make never, sure you've it's like, always, it's ridiculous. Like it's like tomahawk or, and they're like, what are you talking? Like it's so <laughs> out of um, And so then like, there's this strange kind of um, humility. Well, you know, like living with a disability, there's like this humility that you, I think you have to adopt just, especially for the people around you, just like, I can only laugh at this, right? I can either like go to this very dark place and focus on all the words I don't hear anymore, specifically with music. Sometimes it's really hard for me to decipher somebody singing and the lyrics. And so I can focus on the loss or I can focus on like, wow, I'm still hearing. And what I do here is pretty different. And that's really what I've tried to to work on and moving towards accepting and, and figuring out to, a way to live with uh, this condition. Now, you said at the outset of that question that you live with hearing loss. Would you say, do you think you would say to yourself and to people around you that you live with a disability? Would you call it a disability? I don't know, Andrew. I feel like that's such a personal um, recognition that everybody, you know, with a disability, they come to, I feel, oh, yeah. you know what I mean? And so like, I can't say that that's the word that's right for somebody else. I I like the language as someone as a writer, I like the language of living with, like I live yeah. with, thing, and you know, I have this thing and I live with it. I'm trying to find interesting ways to um, see how it affects affects my life, affects my relationship. I think the word disability has so much history, so loaded, and and it's really, and I can see, especially with students of mine who have a variety of different disabilities, how it becomes this central identifier. Yeah. And I think that's really um, challenging, you know, especially as a young person, if you, if you only think of yourself in this one way, or this is the thing everybody notices. And I'll be honest, like I think my hearing loss, at least this is how I feel about myself is the least interesting thing about me. You know what I mean? It's, it's part of who I am and I don't deny it, but it's also like, Oh, I'm a writer and a dad and I have all these other identity markers. Um, so yeah, for me, it's like, I like that, that language of I live with this thing. I have to find out, I have to have these different strategies to live with it. You know, one, I have hearing aids. And so that's one strategy. Another is like how I 
operate when I'm in a public place. I kind of have to have different techniques when it's a loud place and, and things like that, or even in like one-on-one conversation. So something about like living with makes it feel more active versus like, here's this thing that you, you have no choice in the and you have to just kind of, um, it's like a weight kind of hanging on you. Yeah. 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 And I think, you know, for me. yeah. And I think for each of us, it's a different experience. And I think like for me, I would say I'm disabled because there's, there is no way that I can mask. Right. My right. disability. Like I'm a wheelchair user. There's no way you can't tell that I'm hundred percent right. right. having a disability. But I think what's interesting about what you said is like the getting people to come to that place of where they're, of whether or not that term works for them. And I think the nuances people have when they're trying to figure out what terminology works for them is really interesting. I think it's fascinating. And I'll be honest, Andrew, I put it off. And, and you know, I, I, I started learning in my early 30s. I was, I was losing my hearing. And I started getting tested. Like every two years, I would get a hearing test. And at first, it was relatively stable. And then it started to degrade. And I really kept putting off um, telling people, like my family, my, my wife and kids knew about it. But telling like close friends of mine, certainly like talking about with my students, I just kept putting it off. And I really put it off for about 10, 12 years until wow. the, the pandemic. And in some ways, the pandemic allowed me to continue like fooling myself because like all oh, my classes got moved onto Zoom and I could like crank the volume up and be like oh this is like oh, this is great. it's fun yeah yeah i can manage this thing and then once classes went back to in person in um september of 20 uh 2020 then i and everyone had masks on i was just lost like the masks and everyone was like socially distant and i just could not decipher and so it was at that point I started talking about it with students and um, and, and then also really sharing the, the, you know, this thing that I have with friends and fam- larger kind of wider family members. And, um, and now it's something like in a strange way, and maybe you feel like this too, like I'm actually really excited to talk about it because like there's so many people over the last two years who I've shared it with who are like, well, yeah, I've lost hearing in one ear. I, as a kid, I had this virus and I, I never recovered and I have partial hearing. And over the last two years, I found out it's just way more common among people I've known for a long time. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about disability or invisible disabilities that people don't see and we start sharing that narrative, other people come out of the woodwork and go, oh, yeah, me too. Yeah, I deal with that. Yeah, I understand. So I think, like, I think that maybe, you know, as you, as it progresses, as fun as that will be for you, like, uh, you could, you know, start saying, I am a person with hearing loss, or I'm a disabled person, or I, you know, putting. That's that's where, you know, I'm at. And and it's, it's funny, because at that time, I was kind of dealing with these questions, and and it's really a kind of self-acceptance, right? Like, of, okay, I have this thing. It's not going away. Like, this is who, who I am now. That's when I actually started pulling together um, these ideas, these characters, these scenes for this, this book, Book of Extraordinary Tra- Tragedies. I was using 
fiction or is using creative writing as a way to just start like documenting some of the things I was thinking, some of the things I was feeling, not in like an intensive way where I was like, oh, this is going to be this book. It was more like, here's these thoughts I have or some of the things I'm, I'm struggling with. Like I'm such a huge music fan and it's music is, is such a source of um, contentment and joy and pleasure for me. And, and losing some of that over the last, you know, 10, 15 years has been a struggle. Um, and so a lot of that ended up becoming part of, of this book. Yeah. And I noticed that when I, when I started reading it, well, within the first, the first passage is all about music and like, it's all, it's all throughout the narrative music. And I thought, you know, I am not, I, my, I love music, but understanding how to read music and any of that is not something that I know how to do. My experience of, of like reading music ends at like eighth grade band class where I pretended to know what I was doing and had no idea. So, So like, but this this story, the book of extraordinary tragedies, I love it because you've created this family. Each of them are, is dealing with their own level of disability and their own level of, um, yeah, just their own. Each of them have their own disabilities and their own experiences with disability. And let me pull up the proper question so I know what I'm asking. You. <laughs> Hang on. Uh, um, here it is. Yeah, my actual question was yeah. So. These characters are really important, Alex and Isabel and Daniel and their mom, and each of them have their own experience of disability, and they're dealing with it in their own way. Can we talk a little bit about what it was like for you to create these characters that each had their own experience of disability? Yeah, I I love that question. So, and again, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't, you know, I didn't sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write this book, I'm going to write these characters. It really was coming out of my experience um, kind of dealing, starting to accept hearing loss and my relationship to music and that interplay. Because what started changing is um, the way I was hearing music, instead of just focusing on what I couldn't hear anymore, I tried to start focusing on what I was hearing differently. Like a song that I'd heard 20 years ago started to sound different because little pieces are missing or I have tinnitus. And so there's this buzzing and it changes the tone slightly and so out of that I started developing this kid uh, Alex who's 20 years old he lives on the south side of Chicago where I grew up and he lives with his family and in a lot of ways he's uh, a caregiver he's a character trying to keep the the family afloat he lives with his little brother who's 13 named Daniel and Daniel's this really thoughtful introspective kid He's also really fascinated by tragedy. He's like weird. He, I mean, he, he's a weird kid. He's a weird kid. <laughs> but he like, you know, so like he's really into comic books, but what he does is he like traces the characters like Spider-Man or whoever, and he has them doing like really depressing things. Yeah, like so I thought like, that was like, real. like I love those scenes with him where, where Alex took him home from somewhere and be like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, I'm drawing uh, Spider-Man, going to the movies alone because yes. he's sad. Like it's <laughs> so it's like his way of dealing there's a lot of um sadness in the family or uh kind of historical depression and so it's Daniel's way of dealing with that and he also has this like list he compiles of like everything sad everything bad that's happened in the 20th century and his idea is like if I compile everything bad that happened maybe I can 
figure out a pattern for tragedy. Like if you can only map it out, then you can figure out a way to avoid to avoid it. it. Yeah. yeah. And so that's Daniel's struggle, you know, is, is like living in a world where there's just this constant um, possibility that something could go wrong. Like I w- I w- best, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. I would say if we were to name his disability, I would say like, like severe anxiety. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Or avoidance or whatever, you know, it's like, there are these small to large, um, tragedies that occur and he his his method is just to stay away to avoid it to make himself disappear or try to be invisible you know and that's unfortunately like it's a really common challenge that a lot of people um, live with right now it's a very 21st century um, challenge Um, and then Isabel the oldest sister she's 22 she has like incredibly high expectations for herself she's like a former math genius who who bombed out of uh mit and so she really labors under um these enormous expectations that that she has and and she's kind of constantly self-sabotaging she's really smart she's really curious but she makes a lot of decisions that end up uh becoming hugely problematic for her um and again, I feel like that's uh, that's something a lot of us can sympathize with, where we we have all this incredible potential, but then maybe in our relationships or in our work life, we make some decisions that complicate things or make things more difficult for us. Yeah, no, I'm not quite done the book, but I when I when I read Isabel, my first thought looking at it from a disability lens is like, does she have mental illness? Does she have like bipolar too like i like there were many scenes where i was like what something's going on here and i don't know if joe's gonna say in the book i I keep waiting and i think you know there um i don't know if it's like if we can talk about it as a specific disability but there's people who are highly creative highly imaginative highly intelligent who have a hard time in day-to-day relationships are a hard time and like a really confining unimaginative job right yeah. so whether like oppositional disorder or however whatever language you use it's somebody who's like highly capable who happens to be stuck in a place where they're not able to kind of actualize that, those capabilities yeah that's how isabel And this turning point kind of happens in the book when she grew up, her and Alex playing music together. Alex would play the piano and Isabel would play the the cello. And they had this kind of secret language because of that. And she's left that behind um, in her 20s. And and towards the middle of the book, she decides to start playing the cello again. And that gives her that opportunity to express some of the complexity some of the challenges that she's encountering in her life. Um, and, I, and I don't think that's, that's rare. You know, I think that's really like in my twenties, that was the big question. The big challenge is like, I have all these ideas. I have all these thoughts. I, I feel like I can do these things. Where do I belong? Like what's the place, what's the activity or action that I can take that's going to give me that feeling of um, importance or meaning in, in my life. Now, now the and so the character of Alex. One of the things that I love that you've done with this character is that 
like I knew because I got from your publicist like this is a book about disabilities, the other sort of so I knew there was disability that was going to be spoken about throughout the book. So, but the way you've done it is a lot of characters that are written with disabilities in fiction, it, they bludgeon you over the head with the fact that this character has a disability. They make it extremely apparent that this character is less than, weaker, worse off, needs to be pitied. And in this book, all the way through, there are, there are flashes of disability. There are flashes of his hearing loss. And it's talked about really briefly in, in little, little, little scenes. But then yeah. he goes on to living his regular life. And I like that because it we're not brought into disability in a narrative that is like overwhelming and the character is not only their disability. So I really enjoyed that. I, I really appreciate hearing that. That was definitely one of the challenges or one of the goals that I had. You know, once I decided to make, kind of borrow from my own experience and make um, hearing loss one of the elements uh, in Alex's life, the the last thing I wanted to do was to feel like an after school special. You know, like I grew up in the seventies and eighties, and there'd be these like little half hour things about like, don't be mean to kids with glasses, or like <laughs> girl people too, or like just weird. You know, it was like these weird, these weird shows that dealt with like a social issue in a really kind of off putting way. And I think it. You know, it's even just the terminology you and I are discussing can be incredibly personal. It can be incredibly complicated. And the idea that you're going to take like a disability and render it down to just this kind of single conflict. The thing that's been so troublesome in, in the way that I've seen in film or fiction or in television is that it becomes the central or only thing you yeah. know about it. Or you're like this character's blind or this character has hearing loss and that's like all you know about them in terms of their inner life their conflicts their goals they're like and minus one dimensional because that's all the that's all you got yeah you know? and so i wanted Alex to feel like a rich complicated character and that the hearing loss is just one of the many like out of the 10 different struggles that he has it's like what maybe like number nine you know it's like not the thing that's um at the center of of his life in terms of the different struggles that he has the other thing i wanted to try to avoid was you know there's this trope or kind of archetype that like if you have a disability you're somehow magic wise or you have this like understanding that others you mean we're not what i don't <laughs> well but because it's like this it's it's like well if you if you lost your hearing then you must be good at math or like this weird thing of you know it's like this weird myth um that tries to cushion the blow i think or make some of us feel more comfortable like well this person has this ability but they can do this other and what that ends up doing is, I think, unfortunately, kind of creating um, these fallacies. Because if you have a disability and you're like, well, where's my superpower? I was waiting to suddenly like, yeah. be really good at something. And, and the reality is, you know, people with disabilities are people and they're flawed. And what I've seen, yeah. especially in, you know, like uh, Disney films, Oh man, with... Disney is the worst. Disney is the worst. Disney, come on. 
you know, you're like, they're trying, but it's always done in a way that feels really unsophisticated. And so like in those films, the characters with disability, they almost have like a halo. There's like a spotlight mm-hmm. on them. And they like say something really wise or like. Like Tiny they, Tim, you know. Yeah, the yeah. Tiny Tim thing. It's exactly that. Or, you know, and, or they're like, here's this moment. And this kid with this disability suddenly like. Said this inspirational thing and now he's the best and wow, yeah. And so, and they never say or they never do anything wrong. You know, like these characters who have disabilities in pop culture right now, they're like these heroic, flawless characters. Yeah. And I think that's that's really wrong. Yeah, it's just, it's problematic for a lot of different reasons. And so, because then if you live with that disability, like you're not allowed to make mistakes. You're not allowed to, you know, change your mind. You're not allowed to hurt somebody. Yeah. And so like, I wanted to write a book where this kid had hearing loss. He had this disability he's living with, but also makes mistakes. Like he he like steals a computer, you know, or he does these different things that, make him human because i think when you when you remove that from a character the capacity to make mistakes you remove their ability to grow you remove their identity they're no longer a human character they're They're no longer relatable yeah exactly so that was a huge part i was like i don't want to see i want to like see that movie where the the kid who's blind like steals something like Like i I was just gonna i was just gonna say like he alex is a fucked up character and i haven't reached a point whether i've decided if i like him or not or if he's (laughs) like i don't know where i don't know where i sit yet but i like i I like that he is not angelic he's not a saint he makes mistakes i love that that's why i I think i'm drawn to him more and more as i read because i'm like he's not necessarily a good guy or a bad guy he just is a guy He's doing like a thing. A 20, 20 year old kid trying to figure some things out. And so that was that's that to me was really important. And it took really until I completed the book and going back over it through multiple drafts to try and identify like where were those moments where it was gonna be okay for him to say the wrong thing. He has, you know, this this complicated relationship with his sister and Sometimes he says something supportive. Sometimes he says something wrong or he says something arrogant or insulting. And so, okay, how do you make it feel measured so the character is believable? Because I don't think it's service to anybody to present these characters as these like mythical, holy, saintly things. No. And I don't don't think anybody, whether you have a disability or not, wants that in in a story. You know, you want to see characters who make mistakes and then have the capacity to to grow from them yeah and I, you know i think his relationship you know you, you said earlier that he he's a caregiver his relationship with his mom and and him and in the character of isabel watching their mom go from this like really bright really like powerful um what's the word i want you said in the book and i forget what it is she was an academic that's what it was yeah she was exactly yeah and so then she goes from that to kind of stuck in a room not really not really talking to anybody writing this oddly hilarious screenplay about about (laughs) about tom cruise and scientology that's right 
Um, yeah, she's you know she's someone who is definitely struggling with um, depression and, and mental health issues. She's this vibrant character when um, Alex and Isabel are younger, and then um, she develops you know these uh, mental health issues. And not only that, it's kind of compounded by the fact that she's been taking these um, pharmaceuticals so long that it started to affect her her kidneys as well. You know, and so. She's on dialysis, and and again, that that struggle that Alex has is um, really to try and like in the midst of all these different challenges, try to stay hopeful, you know, try even though um, he's aware of his hearing loss, to listen for what he can still hear, to focus on okay, here are these pieces of songs that I can still recognize. What new things can I build out of these kind of fragments or these tragedies or disappointments? Like it's not enough to just say these things are are bad or I've had these setbacks. What can I do? What can I learn from? How can I take them and, and try and create something new? Yeah. And one of the things that I love about his character with the hearing loss specifically is that his, he discovers in the book that his niece is dealing with a similar thing or, a different type of hearing loss or you know possibly the same thing and he then is like oh well if she is going through this then i'm going to learn asl i'm gonna learn yeah, how to communicate yeah. i'm gonna confront my own shit about my stuff exactly too. yeah and so I, that's something that you know he's put off he's had this hearing loss for about 10 years and then you know he doesn't like talking about it doesn't like telling anyone it certainly you know doesn't feel comfortable or ready or interested in learning ASL until his his niece, who he has a close relationship with, starts um, to uh, show these symptoms of hearing loss. And it it's at that point where he's like, okay, because of this person, I'm willing to to accept this part of myself and to actually take some action in order to learn more about it. What was it like for you? Because we talked about how personal it is to come into this experience with disability and even you know sitting here talking to me today it's not any it's never an easy conversation to be like here's what i have here's my deal here's what i deal with what was it like to put this in a in a story um you know and and share this with the world in a character i love that question well i i think at first you know so much of it is um whether you think of it as these obstacles you set for yourself as a person or your failure to accept, or, you know, it's this kind of self ingrained sense of um, ableism. So much of it had to do with just me and, and my own expectations and what I was afraid of, like totally just separate from reality, you know? And so when I started sharing with people that had hearing loss, and then started to write about it in the book, I think so much of what I was afraid of or what was I was uncomfortable about was really just coming directly from me. You know, I had these ideas that were strangely like with my wife who I've known for 20, 25 years. Like if, 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 if I started talking about myself in this way that somehow she would like see me as, as no less than, and then, yeah. You know, or just that like I'm not competent or attractive or like all this stuff and it was really just me um my own kind of um discomfort and uh the way I had thought about myself 
And then, you know, I started wearing hearing aids and I was concerned my students and my kids would treat me differently and or just again think of you or um, respond to you in in a different way that you know you couldn't follow them or you weren't as sharp or intellectual or whatever and it's really almost the total opposite like I put off getting hearing aids for so long and I really regret doing it um, because I was worried about the perception and it actually shifted I think like in a strange way students like when I talk about it you know it opens up the space for vulnerability and a lot yeah. of students feel comfortable and say well I have you know I live with anxiety or I have bipolar or I have these issues and um, I think coming into it from that place it kind of almost puts everybody on a level playing field and so like to give a long answer here it, <laughs> instead of it being this experience where I was worried I was going to feel bad I was going to feel frustrated people were going to look at me differently it's really been this completely opposite one where people have been so kind very accepting and then a bunch of um, students friends people have come said I live with this I have hearing loss you know and and it's been a point of um, kind of conversation it makes me feel like man like um, maybe that's what that's one of the uses or purposes or something that I can take from this experience is like okay if i'm willing to talk about it maybe other people feel slightly more comfortable talking about it as well well i think you like i before we before we did this interview today i did some homework on you and i found a youtube video where you were talking about the book i think to a group of people and um you know thinking about now knowing that you use hearing aids and you have all that thinking about having another student with disabilities see you get up there on that podium and say hi my name is joe i wrote this book here's my story like that is so powerful and then if that kid or that you know young budding author can see you and go well look i want to write stories too but i always thought that my disability would get in the way or wouldn't allow me to they can see yeah. you doing it now and go oh i can do it too yeah no i i think that's powerful and it's it's sometimes um it's just hard, I think, reconciling the way you think about yourself with and, and how you imagine people perceiving you with the reality. And until you do it, until you kind of put it out there, you st- kind of stay up in your head with those those um, preconceptions. And so it also feels liberating, right? Like, because for so long, you know, I was like, I was lying or I was maybe not lying, but I was definitely hiding or I was trying to work around or maneuver reality, you know, this thing about myself. And um, it was a long time. And and I think being able to just talk openly about it also feels liberating, you know, where I'm like, I don't have to pretend. I go to a restaurant and I like crank, a, you know, I got the setting on my hearing aid, I like crank it up. And then like, I can finally participate in a conversation. I don't have to just you know kind of fake my way and, like, and if somebody uh, said shit to you you can stop and say hey that they let's don't do that thank you very much like don't be now and then my kids like it's actually gone to this other place where for a couple of years like my kids and you know i had the hearing loss they were a little bit younger and they would they would say something right and they would say it at like a volume at which 
I would not be able to hear it. Like purposely, they would say something under their breath. They get mad or say, "Dad, you're the worst." Like whatever, but they would say it, and they knew I couldn't hear it. And I and I would know, right? Like because after living with hearing loss for so long, you start to read lips, and so I knew they said something, but I wouldn't necessarily be able to decipher it. And this interesting thing happened, Andrew, where like I would say, "Hey." I know you said something, but <laughs> I think it's better that I don't know what it is for the both both of us. So it gave it gave them like a like a free kind of like replay or whatever, where like they didn't have to say it again, or like they could say this thing. I didn't hear it. I knew they heard something, and then since then, now that I have the hearing aids, like I hear stuff across the room. Nobody's speaking under their breath anymore. Like. Within a week, they figured out like that era was over, you know, like, like, oh, yeah, I can't just say things behind his back anymore. I mean, I'm pretty sure you just unlocked like a deaf dad hack like that. (laughs) I mean, that's anyone with hearing loss or who has some level of deafness who's listening to this right now. um, Yeah, use that on your friends and and kids. It's great. I would say that this book is re- a perfect fit for in the in the disability like writing community. I don't know if I came up with this term. I'm sure someone else did. It wasn't me. Someone else did, but I don't know who it was. Um, but I call it triplet. So it's basically like disabled literature. And I think this book fits perfectly in there because again, you've created characters that are fucked up, that are flawed, that are dealing with disability in a way that isn't inspirational in the least, but is very real. And I think that's really powerful and necessary for I think this next generation of of readers whether you're disabled or not to see disabled characters who are just people period Um, as an author who's hard of hearing what kind of other characters with deafness or hard of hearing do you want to see out there in the world you know of literature or or everywhere I think like, you know, one of the challenges or one of my hopes is to continue to see better representation of characters with a wide variety of disabilities. But in terms of like hearing loss, to see it's a huge difference from someone who has, you know, um, kind of minor degree or moderate hearing loss all the way on to profound hearing loss or deafness. And right now I think you know, in terms of the way characters are depicted in fiction or television shows or movies, it's kind of just like this one size fits all. It's like you you have hearing loss and then that's it. And that's kind of kind of rolled together with with deafness. And there's just such a huge variety. And then in the way that people respond to hearing loss as well. Um, and so just the specificity you know, one of the things I was trying to capture in the book is unless you have it, unless you live with tinnitus and you have this kind of constant buzzing, it's really hard to imagine what it's like. You know, there's a great film that came out um, a couple of years ago called The Sound of Metal. Um, and it, it was incredibly powerful. It, it was actually so powerful. The sound design so like ably captured what it's like to live with um hearing loss and to have uh tinnitus that like we were watching my wife and I and I had to like just like pause and just like take a moment and step away because it was this really 
interesting thing where I had the tinnitus, like I was hearing the ringing and then it was like, as part of the film as well, it was like doubled almost. Yeah. And um, it, it, it really, really deeply moved me because whoever designed the sound or the director who worked with this sound designer, they had really, for the first time in my experience, captured what it feels like, what it actually sounds like, how disruptive it is to having kind of normal conversations. And, and they did a really wonderful job documenting that. Um, and so it's instead of it being like, well, here's the story about this um, person who has this disability generated by someone who maybe doesn't have first uh, firsthand experience. It's been really gratifying to see, you know, writers um, and directors, filmmakers being invited into that conversation who can draw from their own experience. And that's yeah. where I think you start to um, deconstruct you start to break down some of these like tropes or archetypes, the idea of like the inspirational disabled character and finding a much more complex version of it. So that those are the kinds of stories I want to continue um, to see where it's like these characters are able to maintain complexity, their humanity, but you also get a better understanding of what does it actually feel like? What does it sound like? How does it affect their lives in a specific way? Yeah, like I could see these characters doing, I could see it being a series. I could see, like, I could see that happening. I mean. All right, I mean, let's see. We'll see, I could, we'll see Hollywood comes calling. I could see it being the loss, the hard of hearing shameless. Like, does somebody want to make that show? Come on. What's wrong? That sounds like, like that. that's like a show I would 100% definitely watch, you know? Yeah. And that's the other thing. There's there's like one more little like note there is that like the tone in which a lot of these stories are written or these films are made where it's like the tone of like a Hallmark movie. Oh, yeah. You know, where it's like everything's going to work out. And you know, as well as I do, that like it's not like you get to this point and it's over. And you're like, oh, I figured, like, I figured this thing out. Like, yeah, hey. like, no. Like, you like high five somebody and it like freezes. The full house, like, like 1980s ending. Like, yeah. that, that's how it happened. It never happened. So, like, that thing, like, to me, that's when you know you've gotten to a different level of storytelling with depictions of these kinds of characters when it's, you don't have to give. Um, the audience this simple kind of happy uplifting ending that you can be honest and say like well this is really hard and it continues to be hard and 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 so those are the kinds of stories where it's emotionally and tonally much more complex those are the stories I'm interested in in continuing to see yeah I wouldn't say that the book of extraordinary tragedies like when you read the title you're like oh it's gonna be like super dark it's not it's somewhere like it's not dark, but it definitely has like dark hues of darkness. And I like that when I read it because I'm like, oh, it's not gritty. It's not really dark, but there's like a crime element in there sort of a little bit. There's like, like you know, there's like, there's a poverty element in there a little bit. I mean, there's all the things that make a great hero story, but also they're not heroes. And I love that because like, you don't, you don't see the characters going from, oh, we're in poverty. We have like, 50 bucks to pay the water bill and then next week I did something heroic and now everything's fine right. like it's done. that one conflict is over right and there's this interesting thing you know I'm sure you're 
fully aware of, Andrew, this connection between characters that have disability or live with disabilities and characters um, in, in, their, in their economic situation, right? Like, yeah. I was trying to build that into the, the lives of these characters as well for Alex, his hearing loss affecting like certain jobs that he can have and kind of his, his overall um, choice as a young person, what, what kind of life he has for himself, his mother who has these ongoing mental health illnesses and also because of her kidneys, like she's unable to work. And so who's going to be able to support um, this family? And then, you know, just the amount of money that someone with a disability is forced to commit to health insurance or surgery or operation or medical devices. Right? Yeah. Like, so there, there's a huge, like, and that's where too, in some of these movies or, or films or books, like that component is almost never, just never discussed. It's like the economics of disability are almost never brought into, because if you did, it'd be really hard to have like yeah. a happy ending because that those things don't, suddenly just go away and i also like that you in the book you talk about ableism and we we touch on it a little bit but it's never at least where i am so far in the book it's never said the word is unsaid by the characters and i like that because most people when they're experiencing ableism don't have language for it they don't know what it, they don't they know what happened they know it feels shit to have experienced disc- discrimination but that's all they know and so i like that the character the characters aren't so up on their disability justice right. that they know all the terms right away. Um, and I felt like for the reader, for somebody reading that who may have experienced ableism but doesn't know what it is, can can look at characters like Alex and go, yeah, I've gone through that too, but I don't have words for it, but I know what that feels like. I think that's really important. And it's also making, you know, hopefully it makes that character feel a little more... Uh, believable or a little more complex these characters are like 20 years behind the conversation in some ways you know they're yeah you know alex is not quite ready to commit at the beginning of the book to this idea of himself he's not quite ready to say or to accept this part of himself and that's really part of his journey in the story and and that especially a reader you know in their teens 20s like sometimes you experience these things you just don't quite have the language yet to put to the experience that that you had um and so again like i wanted the believability the complexity of the character to um feel like oh this this is what it feels like to go through this thing and later you start you know with some hindsight you're able to start to say like oh this is how I started finding my way towards accepting it, or this is how I was identifying the ways, whether it was self-ableism or from someone I worked with, you can start seeing those those patterns. Now, one of the one of the things I chuckled about in the book, kind of looking at you and talking to you today, now you're a bit older than your the character in the book. And there are some references to Jay-Z and some like musical references from like, you know, from back right. in the day. So, Yep. Did, did you feel like an old person when you were like, let me, let me like put. Andrew, I take exception to these questions. <laughs> yeah. this questioning. First of all, calling me an old person. And no, I, uh, I'm just teasing. So I am 48. Uh, and the book is set in 2008. And the reason the book is set in 2008, because some of the challenges that Alex and his family are negotiating become even more complicated 
during the onset of the financial crisis you know, yeah. which began in 2008. Um, and it was particularly in the neighborhood I grew up in, it was particularly powerful and damaging here in, in Chicago on the South side. So the, although the book is set in 2008, um, and although Alex is kid, he grew up listening and playing classical music, him and Isabel, he loves classical music. He like listens to it on his headphones when he's riding his bicycle around. He's like imagining these compositions. He's also like really, really in love with 90s hip hop. He has a cousin who came over from Poland who was like really into hip hop and introduced him to hip hop. Um, and so he sees this interesting kind of juxtaposition or connection between like classical music and hip-hop and for me I'm also like a huge fan of both classical music jazz and I love especially early 90s hip-hop Wu-Tang Clan Jay-Z and like I, you know when I was a music journalist those were the records that I um, would listen to and that would change the way I was thinking about I don't know why that surprises me right now from looking at you like that that, 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 uh, the classical part yes totally get it totally agree um, it's actually the opposite because like i didn't grow up listening to classical music i grew up listening to like heavy metal and punk rock and from there you know in high school i was in high school when the first nwa record came out i was uh like a sophomore and my friend was like we had a cassette tapes at the time we put it in in his car and we had like a old Ford Escort or whatever and it was the first time I heard NWA and it was the first real experience of of hip-hop and you know to me it felt like this just new wave of literature of music that I had just never experienced before so it was actually in this book almost like the opposite like I was very comfortable very familiar with the hip-hop references that Alex as he's kind of um developing and learning about himself he starts exploring those those um songs so i was really familiar with those records it was actually the classical music that took much more research because that wasn't necessarily something i had you know as a kid as a teenager lived with um, or really knew that much about wow because as a reader like you are introduced to the classical stuff right away um right like so I, and for me being, again, I was like you raised on the, raised on the hip hop and the metal of like the, the mid nineties. Well, right. for me, it was more pop. For me, it was more like Ace of Base and like, you know, Smashing Pumpkins and No Doubt, but like, but. It's all great. That's all beautiful music. I mean, I saw the sign, Andrew. I saw yeah. It. You know what I mean? That, so, and that was the part, part of kind of building out. And this is where like fiction comes in, where you're like, okay, in order to make this story feel dramatic, really, Alex, he moves from a world that um, really centers around his family, his house, like everyone's in that house, and they listen to music and play this music together, and classical music was the music of Eastern European on one half of my family, and that was the music of that Eastern European culture. So I kind of brought that in to be the music of Alex and his family. But as Alex kind of grows and develops over the course of the story, he really starts to branch out of his, his house, his neighborhood. He starts venturing into other parts of the city. And that's where some of the hip hop references start to become stronger and, and more um, 
important in his development. Yeah, and that's another element that you were talking about, like you being Eastern European. I figured that you were because the references in the book to to all of that were very like really strong. And I was like, I'm still kind of like, hmm, I wonder how. Yeah, yeah. All so, the... Did I freeze? Yeah, you just froze for a second. Okay, um, I'll ask it again. Oh, did I freeze oh. again? No, no, you're perfect. Okay. Um, I'll say it again. So yeah, you know, uh, there was a lot of reference to, to the Eastern European, your heritage. And so it makes sense that you're, that you're half Eastern European because there's so much of that in the book. And I like that because I was like, wow, this book has so many different elements. There's disability, there's history, there's musicology happening. There's so much going on there. What was it like for you to, why did you want to share the Eastern European part of yourself in, in this story? I feel like it's so profoundly, it's so clearly connected to the experience of tragedy or catastrophe or disappointment from a really, really young age. Um, the Polish and uh, Croatian, Yugoslavian side of my family, when I would go visit my grandparents, my grandfather would be in the back and he'd be listening to classical music. And they would sit around like my my grandfather, uncles, aunts. And what they would do, Andrew, would be like, they would sit around and tell the saddest stories ever. Almost like a game. Like, who could tell the saddest story one after the other? And, you know, someone would say, oh, and, you know, a story from before World War II or a story like, and then the Soviets came you know, and they killed all of our horses. It would be like one after another. And it, as a kid, it was so strange and like kind of uncomfortable and horrifying. And then as I got older, I realized like, oh, it's so specific to that to that culture of um, not trusting happiness or not feeling like you deserve happiness or feel- Or like, like secure in the happiness. Yes. Yeah. Or feel you deserve it or you are entitled to it. And the idea on, on my mom's side is that like, you should expect trouble. You should expect something to go wrong. You should expect disappointment. And it was really through that culture that when I began encountering this hearing loss, it felt like I had been prepared from a young age of like, this is what happens. You know, like life isn't always how you plan it to be. And there's different challenges, these different tragedies that happen. And you can acknowledge them, but at some point you have to like accept it and you have to find a way to use it, make something out of it or find a way to to move on. And so it's really like such a, and it's funny, like, you know, so many relatives and, and other friends who grew up in that Eastern European culture, it's such a huge part. There's almost this preference, like you prefer the tragic because it's reliable and like something good or happy happening is like something that you're, you don't quite um, trust because you know it's not going to last. Yeah, and I mean, I think for for me, I'm only going to speak for me, but for me as a disabled person, like I can, I can resonate with that. Like, oh yeah, I'm used to, having to need the surgery or my body not doing what I want to do or like disability is going to make me not able to do this thing I want to do. And so I think when I read the stuff that's happening to that family, I'm like, Oh yeah, I get this. I understand this. Like I've been there. Yeah, exactly. And in some way, like when I was a kid, I thought it was like so strange to hear these stories and listen, 
this really like complicated this classical music which in itself is like you know would start off sad and then get happy and get sad again and like if you listen to pop music and you're trained to listen to like a two minute three minute pop song and then you try to listen to classical music it's so confusing because it goes through all these different kind of tonal shifts and you're like is this happy is this sad and hearing these stories from my family I I always thought of it as this kind of strange, unfamiliar part of um, my own history. And it was really later in my 20s, 30s, that I realized it was this kind of gift to be exposed to those stories, to be exposed to that music, to have the idea that like nobody should expect happiness all the time. You know, that these things, especially as you, you age, you get into your 20s, as you get older, like, these things are going to keep occurring and you can't simply say like, well, this is not what I was promised. I thought this was going to be a different kind of story or you just can't walk away, you know, and that it was really kind of preparation or a kind of education to know like life is, is challenging and difficult. And sometimes you don't get exactly what you want, but you most times you don't get exactly what you want (laughs) most of the time. And so, and what do you do then? What do you do? And it's like, how do you find these moments of joy or these moments of poetry or these moments of beauty in the midst of that kind of disappointment? And that that was something that I had, had been taught, you know, from that culture. Um, and it didn't really become clear until much later. It really, and it really affected when I was losing my hearing and listening to music, it instead of focusing on what I could not hear to focus on what I was hearing differently or even to focus on the silence and how now like I have a hundred, 500, 1,000 different kinds of silences that I'm aware of that I would have never been aware of before. I feel like that needs to be a tattoo that you put in your body somewhere like (laughs) I have a thousand kind of like that's really that's yes, tattoo. Yeah, like that's yeah, I love powerful it. shit right there. And if and when you do that, let me know and I'll come to. I I think no, I'll put it on Instagram. Big chest tattoo. Yeah, that's Big. right. Big. There you go. Um, I could sit and talk with you for like a million more hours because you just wow, so much fun today. And thank you for writing such a complicated, complex piece of literature that touches on all these things. It's such a pleasure, Andrew. Thanks so much for your really thoughtful, really wonderful questions. Thanks for giving me an opportunity to talk about this and for people to engage with these kind of questions. Of course. Now, for the people that want to pick up the book and read it, because we gave it such a glowing review, how do they, where do they, how do they get it? It's available in bookstores and also on bookshop.org, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all all the major retailers. Um, I am a huge proponent of supporting indie bookstores. So maybe you have a great indie bookstore in your neighborhood. Um, So I would recommend seeing if they have a copy, ask them to order it. Uh, If not, bookshop.org is a great independent um, online resource. Now, just for... um just for people who maybe need accessible formats, it comes in like a digital format, right? 100%. Yeah. So there's a, like a digital e, e version, a Kindle version. So if that works better for people, it's available. 
cool. If you if you do need somebody to do an audiobook, let me know and I'm uh I'm hanging out. So if you need okay. somebody to do to do that for you, I'd be happy to. Because I'd love to see that on Audible sometime. But uh and I want to make sure people support you because it's important the stuff you're putting out there. How can they follow you? How can they support you? So you can check me out, jomino.com. Uh, I'm also on Instagram um, and Facebook if someone wants to get in touch with me that way as well. Cool. I'll make sure that all that stuff is in our show notes for today. Jomino, thank you so much for writing your book, for being here, and for shining a light on your new book, The Book of Extraordinary Tragedies, out now wherever you get books. Thanks so much, Andrew. It really was such a pleasure talking to you today. Oh, it was so fun. Thanks, Joe. Have a great afternoon. You too. And just before we close out, I want to say that I really appreciate Joe's honesty and Joe's um, forthrightness as we talked about stuff in this episode. I loved his sense of humor and his just his realness with his experience and how that translated into the characters in this book. Again, I highly recommend you pick up the book wherever fine books are sold. Um, and we will see you in two weeks for our next episode. I have come down with COVID. COVID finally got me three years on after a ton of masking and self-isolation and being really careful. COVID finally took me out. So I'll see you in two weeks for my next episode with my friend Jeremy Osland, who talks about his experience being queer and autistic. So we'll be talking about that next week, next episode in two weeks from now thank you again so much for your support and for listening to disability after dark i'm again your host andrew gerza and we'll see you in two weeks bye all right friends that's another episode of disability after dark the podcast shining a bright light on disability stories i was of course your delectable daddy host Andrew Gerza, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening and shining a bright light on disability stories with me. If you want to follow all my work and see all my links and all the cool stuff I'm doing, you can head over to my new website, aagerza.com. And all my stuff is there. My social links are there. My website is there. My podcast is there. Everything is there. And you can follow along with the show that way. If you want to leave... A review for the show, please do so wherever you get your podcast. It really does help keep the bright lights shining on this show. If you want to support the show financially and get the show one day early, completely ad-free, as well as a shout-out on the air, consider pledging as little as $1 a month or $5 a month or more by going to patreon.com slash disability after dark. Stay comfy, cozy, and crippled. And we'll shine a bright light on disability stories next time. Copyright Notice Disability After Dark was created, recorded, and produced by Cripple & Co. Productions and Andrew Gerza. Any and all use of materials, graphics, audio recordings, etc. cannot be used or distributed without express permission. If you would like to use an episode of the podcast or license an episode of the podcast on your website, please consider emailing Andrew Gerza and Crippling Co. Productions at disabilityafterdarkpod at gmail.com. Copyright 2023.